Congratulations, Shivani. <laughs> Our guest speaker for this last session is the former public protector of South Africa, Professor Tulima Donzela. She is known for her iconic leadership and speaking truth to power, and for also the press briefings of the reports from the Office of the Public Protector, which I remember had very witty and attention-capturing names. <laughs> that time certainly helped um, made me appreciate the strengths of our constitutional democracy. Her full bio is available in full in the app and in the handbook. Um, welcome to you, Professor, and we look forward to your address on ethical leadership. Thank you, Karabo, for the kind introduction, and thank you to the association and its leadership for the privilege to address you today. I was sitting over there and looking at all of you and thinking to myself, wow, so many Sheldon Coopers in one room. <laughs> can imagine the brain power in this room. It must be amazing. I'm here to talk to you a bit about ethical leadership. I thought though that you've heard a lot about ethical leadership and the value I can add is to talk to you about ethical leadership anchored in epic leadership. And I'll talk a bit about that later. But the one thing I would like to observe, though, about ethical leadership is the fact that you are in this room. Would you agree with me that that was an ethical decision to be here? Because you paid, or most of you had the company pay for you, and you could have chosen not to come. And, and, and found other priorities. But in that conversation, in your heads, you resolved to come, which is because you believed coming here is the right thing to do and staying at this time of the day is also a right thing to do. Who moved our nene is probably a question in the minds of everyone now. And it's something that shook us, you will agree with me. It, it took approximately, according to News 24, less than seven days for Minister Nene to be regarded as a former hero, basically. And a lot of us, or a lot of the reaction, gave me a sense that it's not that we felt that we were short change. Rather, the source of our concern was not just the fact that we felt that we should change or we're not given the truth by the minister. I think a lot of the reaction as I said in my financial mail column, had to do with the fact that we liked him, we trusted him, we put him on a pedestal, and when he seemed to have done what the others had done, we lashed out at him more than the others. The same way as Caesar did when Brutus happened to be among the people that stabbed him, he didn't care about all of the other people that stabbed him. The only one he cared about was Brutus because Brutus had been his protege and friend and he was therefore the last person that Caesar expected that. Hence we now speak about you two Brutus and which was the reaction we gave to the minister. But as we think about who moved uh, our nene, probably you're thinking about the book Who Moved My Cheese, which is the reaction that people have when there's a change or disruption that you did not anticipate, uh, which requires you to adjust your mind and adjust your sales in terms of how to proceed. And in the book by Spencer Johnson, he talks about mice, and 
uh, who were eating some cheese. And they didn't know who put the cheese there. They just found a cheese station and everyone enjoyed the cheese until one day the cheese was gone. And one set of the mice was angry that the cheese had been moved and complained who moved my cheese. And the other set went away and looked for and found new cheese. And there's no guessing who, who ended up cheeseless. It's the analysts, and, and not you guys. <laughs> I know you do data analytics, but you don't overanalyze change in society. But what else has moved in our society? Um, who moved our, 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 our reality? VBS, Bank, KPMG, University of Johannesburg, UJ, Steinhoff, McKinsey, the New Age, which is gone now, with uh, NN7, ESCOM, and many others. But at the bottom of all of this is the erosion of public trust. I think at this stage, we're a nation that is wounded insofar as public trust is concerned, but we're not the only nation. Public trust is at its lowest throughout the world. And therefore, I'm so grateful to the organizers of this conference uh, for including ethical leadership and ethics generally as part of this conference, because if there ever was a time to talk about ethics, to talk about ethical leadership, and to talk about the best way to anchor ourselves in ethical leadership, it is this time. Nobody trusts anything, not even the UN enjoys the trust it had at, at the beginning of its um, formation. So what is ethical leadership? I believe that leadership is the art of influencing and inspiring yourself and others to think and act in a particular way. So you don't have to be a good person to be a leader. I've heard people saying that leaders are people who lead people to something good. I don't think so. It's just leaders is how you move people from one point to another and you influence them to think that it's a good idea to go in that direction. They trust you, they're inspired, and they do as you have led them. And you could have led them by saying something, you could have led them by doing something, like the guy who wore torn jeans. And it said that a student who was regarded as cool one day rocked up with torn jeans just because he didn't have the time or the means to fix his jeans. And within no time, everyone was wearing torn jeans. And we're told today that they're the most expensive jeans on earth. But that person didn't wake up to say, I want to lead students to wear torn jeans. It was the power he had to influence and inspire others that made other fo others follow. Today they even wear dirty jeans. <laughs> and you buy them from a shop, literally. But I don't know how true the stories are, but the, the story again is another cool kid rocked up with dirty jeans. And everyone thought, this looks cool, because he said, this is the style, and everyone followed. So leadership is how we have the ability to influence people to think in a particular way and to, to be inspired to act in a particular way. So if leadership is the ability to influence and inspire yourself and others to think and act in a particular way, then ethical leadership is the ability to inspire it's ethical leadership is the ability to influence and inspire others to act in the right way, to appreciate what is right and what is wrong, and to consistently act in their accordance, in, in accordance with their appreciation of right and wrong. So in other words, then ethical leadership is not just what you do, it's how you influence people. It could be influencing your staff, it could be influencing your colleagues, whether senior 
or not senior, it could be influencing members of your family, it could be influencing your friends, but as professionals, you also have the ability to influence other professionals in this field. And you wouldn't rock up and decide that you want to influence them, but through your actions, if you are trusted, if people think, if people look up to you, they will start doing what you do or what you say. What is in it for professionals in business? Why do we want to act and lead ethically? I believe that when ethics fail, governance fails, and when governance fails, things fall apart. And this is the case whether we're talking government or private sector. When we stopped acting in accordance with our appreciation of right and wrong, things start to fall apart. They don't fall apart immediately, though. You know, it's said that Rome was not built in one day. The truth also is that Rome did not fall in one day. I recently went to Greece, and it was amazing to see the country that invented democracy as we know it, even though we know that there was democracy of some sort in Africa and Asia, but the word democracy was invented in, in, in Greece, and, and its perfection happened particularly in the 5th century BC in Greece. But they're a country today that's battling with democracy. And if you speak to colleagues, they tell you that it has boiled down to ethical leadership. It has boiled down to who has been given entrusted power and how was that power used. And you do know that at some stage Greece even became insolvent as a country and had to be bailed out by the EU, and the country is still battling with the aftermath, which reminds us that we have to pay one percentage point more that since April this year, precisely because we also ended up with governance failure in various ways. And when money was needed for free education, we didn't have reserves. Mo Ibrahim says, Africa is a big continent with a relatively small population, given the continent size. And being a big continent, it has enormous resources. And he says there's no reason why we should have poverty in this continent. There's no reason why we should lack infrastructure in our cities and villages. Yet we do. Yet we have people who die from malnutrition. We have 20%, 28% children born into malnutrition, raised in the first 1,000 years into malnutrition, and they end up with brain underdevelopment, which will stunt the development of the next generation. We have poverty at 55% across groups, which means one in two people in this country are poor. But it gets worse. Among black people of African descent, Poverty is at 64.2%, meaning one, um, almost two out of three are poor. And a third are extremely poor. These are the people who go to bed without food at times. And we saw it at university, students sleeping in bathrooms, having no food, loaf of bread for a week, and taken with water. And occasionally, if the workers in, in, in those universities who are poor themselves give these students smoke, that's it. At my university, Stellenbosch, we've also found out that there is an underclass of students that go without food. Hence, we have a Move for Food campaign trying to make sure that nobody studies on an empty stomach. So, but all of this, boils down to 
our decisions around right and wrong. Which takes me to the next point. Where's the playbook on ethics? As professionals, you must have gone through a class on ethics when you did your actuarial science degree. And one of the questions that are raised when you do ethics is, are ethics universal? Can we, can we concretely say this is right and this is wrong? Personally, I believe that there are ethical issues that are universal. Just the principles do no harm and allow no harm in your presence is universal. But what emerges is what is harmful. And then most societies at the golden rule don't do unto others what you wouldn't want to be done to you. Seems to me that that's a good principle, that's a good ethical principle. But in diversity we often say, no, don't do unto others what you'd like to be done to you. Do unto others what you would like to be done to you if you were like them. Does that make sense? Because if you're a man, you say, do unto women as you would like done unto you, you might say that, oh, we're not going to give you maternity leave because as a man I'll never need maternity leave. So you say do unto others as you would like done to you if you were like them or if you were in these circumstances, uh, and which would be diversity in terms of religion, diversity in terms of sexual orientation, nationality, and all sorts of differences, including cultural differences. But for our purposes in this room, I would say the key lodestar for ethics in the public sector is the Constitution. And why does the Constitution matter? I, I'm certain that most of you here are public sector, are private sector professionals, but you do work with the public sector, and the public sector does regulate uh, our work, even if we're not in the public sector. We therefore need to know where do we get the ethical playbook in the public sector, and it's mostly section 195 of the Constitution, uh, which says the public protector, I mean, sorry, <laughs> the public sector, <laughs> <laughs> that's a Freudian slip. It says the pu public sector has to operate with the highest level of professional ethics. I read section 195 basically to be saying from cleaner to pre president, if you work for the public sector, you are a professional. You should conduct your work professionally. And what is the highest level of professional ethics? It includes honesty, efficiency, fairness, responsiveness, and trans transparency, and among others, answerability or accountability. And you must agree with me that often that was one of the most difficult things to extract from people accountability. I think public professionals or public sector workers are some of the hardest working people in the world and we often blame them for corruption. I've worked in the public sector, I've worked with people in the public sector, I've investigated them. I would say the average person works hard beyond the call of duty. But there's one weakness. People believe that accountability is an insult. And you just ask a person, can you please justify your decision? You have declared a war. I had an example brought to me recently um, about a trade unionist who's now being taken through a disciplinary process because he's taken up a case where some staff members wanted to know why an acting chief director was appointed to act as an acting DDG when there were five DDGs 
that could have, when there were five chief directors that could have acted as DDGs. Okay, in the public service, you have a director general, then you have a deputy director general, a chief director, and a director. So this fellow was an acting chief director. While he was an acting chief director, the, the chief director, the incumbent of that post, was an acting DDG. So the acting DDG goes overseas, and instead of appointing one of her colleagues, I mean, if you're supposed to be a positional leader, you should be able to lead your colleagues. Instead of appointing one of her colleagues, the, the, the ones she is leading, because she's now acting DDG and they are chief directors, she appoints the director who is acting chief director. And the trade unionist just asked the question, why did you do this? So the first answer is, it's none of your business. And the second answer is, he's been issued with disciplinary proceedings for challenging the authority of the DDG. It would be interesting how that case proceeds and if it would meet the test of Section 195 and, 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 and various other considerations, including PAJA, that is the Promotion of Administrative Justice Act. The public sector laws also include Section 1 of the Constitution, which pretty much talks about the kind of society we're trying to build, which is a society that is um, uh, based on the quality of everyone, that uh, releases the potential of every person and improves the quality of life of every person. It's a transparent society based on the rule of law and accountability. And section one, section 96 is about ethical conduct for ministers or members of the cabinet, and section 136 is for provincial people. Key there is the regulation of conflict of interest. And conflict of interest is one of the key areas where there are problems. And I suppose even in your sector, that might be an issue. Uh, the need to realize when you are wearing two hats and you work with data analytics. You might want a particular outcome with the data, uh, with the data that you're working on, and you have to, to be clear about um, how you use the data and uh, is with integrity, regardless of the outcome, undermining the outcome you would have preferred personally. Codes of conduct also regulate particular groups in the public sector, doctors and uh, actuarial scientists, I'm sure they're employed by Treasury. They would be regulated by the code of conduct for public servants. And then there are those that are specific to each profession, like lawyers, doctors, etc. In the private sector, we're regulated by laws. I would say, though, the most important part, as I was told by your president, Peter, was um, you have a code of conduct in addition to industry norms and laws. But it's important to know that ethics and law converge, but sometimes they don't. One of the cases I dealt with was a case of Mr. G, Mr. and Mrs. G, that built RDP housing. And before they finalized the RDP houses, the municipality used the money for something else. It was a, a, a grant from, uh, from the province which was supposed to be used only for RDP housing, but they used it for something else. And having used it for something else, there was no money for the top structure, and the, the houses were built. Mr. and Mrs. G's company was a subcontractor. It wasn't the main contractor. And they got a verbal go-ahead, go finalize the RDP housing, and they did. And after they finalized, they, they, they built the houses, the municipality 
uh, took those homes and gave them to the public. And there was funfair, as they normally have in RDB housing, and they take a, a cute grandmother and they take a picture with her and they give her the key, and everyone is very happy that we're delivering. Mr. G then, and Mrs. G, they go to the municipality and ask for the pay for the top structure. The municipality does not engage them about whether or not they built the top structure. There's no debate about that. The municipality simply says two things. One is we did not tell you in writing to build the top structure. Two, you're not our contractor. You're a subcontractor, and therefore legally we have no relationship with you. Mr. and Mrs. G, they went to court, and the court confirmed that, that there's no contractual relationship between the municipality and Mr. G. So thank God there is a public protector. If there wasn't, can you imagine? Law and justice are cousins, but they're not always friends. Because you'll agree with me that this was an injustice. But the question for us tonight is, was it ethical for the Nelson Mandela Bay municipality at the time to say, we're not going to pay you. You built these homes. We've used them, but we're not going to pay you on a legal technicality. Do you think that was fair? As a public protector, we didn't think it was fair. But what was our entry point as a public protector was we don't enforce contracts. Our job is to find out what happened. What should have happened is the discrepancy between what happened and what should have happened. And if there's a discrepancy, does it amount to impropriety or is it explainable? If there's no justification for the discrepancy, was somebody harmed by the improper conduct. And definitely Mr. and Mrs. G were harmed because if government had just done what it was supposed to do, it was government's job to make sure that everything is done in writing, number one. Number two, it was government's job not to use the money that was designated for RTP housing for something else. So we said to the fellow, um, uh, we listened to the story and in the end we wrote a report that said they must pay. And the municipal manager wrote to us and said, we accept all findings and we're going to pay. But this was just before the 2014 elections. And a new mayor came in and they wrote back to us. The municipal manager wrote to us to say he's not going to pay. And of course, we thought that was unethical. We thought that was cruel, and quite frankly, when that mayor did not make it during the elections, I didn't shed a tear. <laughs> Just because really being cruel to the poor is the worst of cruelties. We shouldn't be cruel to anybody. But there are people who have already been dealt a blow by life. Mostly not because of anything they did wrong. As we know, for example, from poverty statistics, it shows that 95% who are born poor are likely to have the next generation poor and the next generation poor, unless there's a, a, a very conscious intervention to stop the cycle of poverty. So it was lawful for the municipality to do what it did, but it was grossly improper and unethical. But what causes ethical lapses? John Maxwell says, everything rises and falls with leadership, and that's why my engagement around ethics centers on leadership, that we shouldn't just talk about ethics, we should talk about leadership. And for me, leadership is twofold. It's leading yourself and leading others, the, the definition of leadership. Regarding leading others, um, a story is told of a king, wasn't King Shaka, but you have King Shaka there. The story is told of a king who wanted an heir because he didn't have any sons. Those were the days when gender equality was legal. 
And in some cases, it's still legal, except in Ethiopia, where they now have a president who's a woman from today. <laughs> um, the king was eventually given three good men. The whole community thought these were good guys, and these good guys were potential heirs for the king. And he gave them one final test. He gave all of them three seeds to go and plant trees and come back with fruit in three years' time. Three years' time, the one came with only one tree that had borne fruit, and, and, and he had fruit, but it wasn't the best fruit, but he had fruit. The second one came with the best fruit. All trees had borne fruit, and the fruit was really, really great. The third one came humble, folding his hands, and told the king, sorry, sir, I did everything. I put fertilizer, water, I looked after the seed the best I could, but none of it germinated. There were no trees, so I have no fruit to give you. So who would you have appointed as your successor if you were the king? The last one. Wow, say, that's interesting. Some say the second one because he brought the most. And interestingly, business until recently ran according to the rules where the second one gets the highest rewards. They get a good bonus. They rise in the leadership of the organization and they eventually become a CEL. I remember the day I was unfollowed by my own people, not on Twitter, in real life. <laughs> it was around the issue of who do you reward? Do you reward the one who appears to have harvested a lot, or do you reward the one who appears to have yielded nothing, but they really worked hard? In our case, we had a system where the highest number of cases closed gave you the highest rewards. So you got a bonus, you get a promotion, you got rich, and you rose in the ranks. And I I thought it couldn't be like that because we needed to make sure that the person who gets rewarded is the one who had a proper investigation. And a court of law had defined for us what was a proper investigation. That was the Mail and Guardian case. Had very clearly said that the investigation has, been has to be thorough. It's not enough to ask government, did you do this? And government said, I didn't do it. And then you close shop. You've got to conduct an independent investigation. That's what the, the oil gate case said to us. And, well, to cut the long story short, I said no bonuses for anyone until we can sort out this matter, and I got unfollowed. But the lesson I learned there was um, it's not enough to do the right thing. You have to do the right thing the right way. And, and again is hard power gets eroded with overuse, whereas soft power increases with use. So in my case, uh, I was advised by a total stranger who eventually became a friend. You know him in this industry, Edward Kiswerter. I, I met him uh, uh, during that crisis, and he told me, take a step back. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. You know that's a, a Chinese proverb, and we eventually decided what really do we exist for? What's our purpose? If our purpose is to ensure that uh, we help people vindicate their rights and, and get justice when they have, their rights have been violated, is it enough to just do a flimsy investigation and then, and you get a reward for that? Would that strengthen constitutional democracy? Would that build credibility for the institution? We all agreed, and then eventually we had rules that everyone had formulated. But back to the king, this king had not wanted to know who can yield the highest fruit. He wanted to see who could yield the highest fruit with integrity. And in this particular case, 
he told them that the seeds were dead. And I suppose he had boiled them before the test or, or something. And, but what does it mean there about leadership and how we reward people? It means depending on who we reward, we lead. So we're sending subliminal messages to our team about right and wrong. And I was particularly pleased to listen to the president of Unilever speaking at One Young World recently at The Hague about how important it is for them at Unilever to make sure that they reward people for the right reasons and punish people for the right reasons. And that the fact that you made a mistake, a genuine mistake, can't be grounds for punishment. And we got the same message from uh, the L'Oreal manager who, whose real function is research like yourselves, but more scientific research. The importance of making sure that the products uh, have integrity and if there's something wrong with the products, they can be recalled, even if it means losing money. Remember with VW, when there was an understanding that there might be a problem with carbon emissions, but somebody must have given a go ahead, and in the end, it cost more. Which brings, brings me to this. At personal level, people do unethical things because of need. If you look there, we have um, the situation in Gandla. A lot of the officials that participated had a need, a need to keep their job, a need to keep peace in the workplace, a need not to be kicked out of the inner circle, and, uh, and they complied. But once you are in that ring, once you have been given a bit of the proceeds of crime, corruption being crime, you become greedy because you want to give yourself these opportunities and you create your own opportunities. So it starts from need to greed. But sometimes in the environment we live in, which uh, in industry you call an environment that is volatile, uncertain, complex and ambivalent, sometimes you have to think in your feet. And sometimes you make these decisions because you think you're saving the company. And if you look at some of the companies that are mentioned earlier, I thought about them and I thought about what I learned in the World Economic Forum about companies often finding it difficult to trade in a corrupt environment. And then eventually deciding if you can't beat them, join them. So in other words, they decide to defer cost because the cost of being upright in a corrupt environment is that you're going to be excluded from things. I mean, in my case, well, it was small exclusions like uh, with our team was, uh, we used to be invited to these important events in government, uh, uh, presidential awards and visiting heads of states and in, in my early career as a pub potato, I found myself sitting with presidents of other countries. It was a little bit awkward. But by 2016, towards the end of my term, all of my invitations had been eaten by the dog. <laughs> Literally, because eventually we're left with two, the presidential awards and the, the sauna. And then even those didn't arrive. I remember with the last sauna, we we really had to use jaws of life to claw it out of them because Kurt Johan had, had made a dress for me <laughs> and I had to wear this dress. <laughs> so my PA had to find out what happened to the invitation, even though we knew that it had gone where all of the others had gone, but they said they sent it and they resent it. <laughs> But those are things that happen to you. But it can really get bad uh, to you being called a spy and, and all sorts of things. And 
and, and even being threatened with murder. In your case, do these things matter? They do, because information matters. In fact, somebody has said that the next war, if ever there'll be a war that is fought, it will be fought because of data. And today, I was reading something where Google and others have expressed a concern about how data is used and how data is collected. You saw with the American, for example, the American elections, concerns around the data that was flowing that gave people an impression that people favor so-and-so or people favor so-and-so. And you, in, in your field, have control over these things. In your field, you probably also will control the AI that is going to handle data, the algorithms, because they also depend on how they're programmed. There are even ethics of those algorithms. Somebody will have to program them. All I can say is pay now is hard but better. Delayed payment either for yourself or for your organization, can be very costly. And it might be not today. Look at the Me Too movement. These people did things 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and these things are coming back to haunt them. And that's why I'm, I'm, I say the fact that it's legal is not enough. If your conscience tells you it's wrong, don't do it. If your conscience tells you it's wrong, Whatever is done by someone else, make sure that you tell them not to do it. But sometimes the problem is ethical dilemmas and um, where it's not easy to say what's right and what's wrong. In the interest of time, I'm not going to give you an ethical dilemma. I can only just say to you, um, as Edmund Hillary said, it is not the mountain we conquer but ourselves. When it comes to ethical dilemmas, it's really about you deciding what are you prepared to live with? What do you love? For us, when there were ethical dilemmas, we resolved them through looking at what do we love, what are we prepared to live with, beyond the immediate consequences. I had said to you that the best way to consistently act ethically and to lead ethically is to use the epic way. And what is the epic way? As you can see on the board, it is a way where you lead consistently in an ethical way. Leading in an ethical way does not mean you never do something wrong. It means you do what you believe is right, the right way. And uh, Mandela said, you know, there's no saint unless you believe a saint is a sinner who keeps trying to do things right. And that's all we ask of you is, and that's what all I have asked of myself and, and, and the people I've worked with, do what you believe is right. And the law tells us what's right. And, but beyond the law, our own values, our own institutional values, our own personal values do tell us what's right and what's wrong. And the treatment of Mr. G is one example where the law says you can do it, but ethically it's wrong to do it. Purpose-driven, it helps to be purpose-driven, not just in terms of where do you want to take your life and where do you want to take your organization. It's also where do you want to take this world? Where do you want to take this country? If you make a decision that conveniently helps somebody, aren't you like the scorpion that was aided by the frog. The scorpion that killed people and the frog aided it to run away. But once in the middle of the river, the scorpion stung the frog. And the frog asked the scorpion, but you promised me money not to sting me. And the scorpion said, but it's my nature as a scorpion to sting. So you, you have so much power. We all have different powers. And if we aid people to do something wrong because it's convenient, because it's going to take us somewhere temporarily, uh, we have to always think about what's the purpose for our own lives, our own career.
And what implications does this have for that purpose? What's our purpose for the country and for the world we want to live in? Impact conscious is the one, if you look at the king, the example of the king, had that king rewarded the young men who came back with seeds, with fruits from three trees, if the king had rewarded that, the unconscious impact of that would have been, it's okay to cheat. All that matters is the results, you know, the Machiavellian way. Whatever it, you, can, you can cheat, you can steal. And in companies, often there's a question of data. One of the cases I dealt with was this young fellow whose life has been totally devastated. He was in IT and he had to clock in. He had to collect data on um, the time devoted by technicians to help government. But he reckoned that there had to be resonance between actual human time. One person can't be awake 24 hours a day, every day. But if there are seven people and, um, and they work certain hours, there had to be, the numbers had to show some kind of balance between what is humanly possible by seven people in the company. And the company, on the other hand, these people cheated. So if a person had gone for two hours, they would come back and say they went for four hours. But when you tallied it, it would look like everyone works 24 hours all the time. They told the company that this was wrong, and the company did nothing about it, and he felt very depressed about it. He was a Christian, and he reported it. And this matter went to the NPA. He was put on witness protection. And then eventually when the the NPA uh, prosecutor was changed. The new prosecutor came back and said, there's no reason to prosecute insufficient evidence. The matter came to us. When we checked this matter, we found that all of the evidence he had collected was still sealed. And we couldn't understand how the NPA had arrived at insufficient uh, evidence. But what is the unconscious deed there? Is if you let this go, you are saying this can continue. And then lastly, committed to serve. Ultimately, not everything goes according to plan. And it helps to stay on track, particularly in your VUCA environment, or in our VUCA environment, if you stay committed to whatever it is and whoever it is you are serving. For us, for example, it was helpful to know that ultimately handling corruption is not just about corruption. It's really about creating an inclusive society. Because if it, there's one thing that violates the principle of equality, if there's one thing that violates social justice, even before we think about theft and siphoning of money, it is corruption. Because corruption creates an unlevel playing field the survival of the unfittest. We had to think that we are creating an environment that strengthens constitutional democracy. In other words, we're serving even the people who are doing wrong things because they themselves want to live in a stable society, in a stable democracy, and a peaceful democracy. And in the end, we came up with these principles of epic leadership. And it can it be done? In our case, it was done. You see the judge um, Lambo saying we were right. Um, dear colleagues, thank you for the privilege of addressing you. Thank you for choosing to talk about ethics, to talk about ethical leadership, to talk about what each one of us can do to turn things around in our companies, in civil society, in our country, and in the world. The CEO of, of Unilever says we have to bring this world back to sanity, 
to put the greater good ahead of self-interest. But in the end, actually, doing the right thing is the pursuit of self-interest as well. But it's for long-term self-interest, isn't it? Because if you do wrong thing, you're poisoning the ecosystem. The same ecosystem is going to come back to bite us, just like the scorpion bit the frog. Bishop Tutu says, there are many major problems facing the world today. Business has both a responsibility and an opportunity to be part of the solution and should be a major force for good in helping to solve some of the most pressing problems of our time. Every generation has an opportunity and responsibility to make the next chapter of its community and the world a better one. I am so pleased that despite the challenges we have around truth, ethics, and leadership, there is a growing critical mass of people who are not only concerned about doing the right thing, they're stepping up to do the right thing. Your being here this minute tells me that you're part of that critical mass because the world we yearn for depends on our next actions. Thank you. Professor Mandonsela. Um, Professor Mandonsela has to will be leaving soon, but she said she could take two questions. And so, if you have a question or two, would you like to put up your hand for those who are interested to ask a question? There's a question. Oh, there's two. Okay, on this side. Sorry for anybody else who is sitting somewhere else. So we've got uh, one here and another one on the on the other side, both on the side of the room. Uh, we're able to get mics down. It's coming, yeah, it is coming. Yeah. We'll go to Temba and then to yourself, yeah. The gentleman with the white shirt on the side, thanks. Thank you. Okay. Uh, thank you. That was great. It really was. Thank you. Um, I've got a problem. I've actually done a, quite a bit of research about how the world treats whistleblowers. And my conclusion is badly. What's your response? Thank you, sir. The world does treat whistleblowers badly most of the time. But there are different countries with different regimes for, for whistleblowers. And we're one of those countries with a regime. It's not one of the perfect ones, but it's better than most countries. For example, in terms of the Protected Disclosures Act, if you whistleblow properly, you don't go scandalizing people, you do it the proper way, and, and there's no suggestion that you did this because you were already being disciplined and you, you, you're merely fighting back. You can report this matter in terms of the Protected Disclosures Act to the Public Protector or the Auditor General or some other designated um, authority in terms of the Protected Disclosures Act. The only problem is that there's no responsibility on them to investigate, but naturally, whenever these matters were reported to the public protector, we investigated. Secondly, the Protected Disclosures Act says, if you have um, made a protected disclosure under the Act, you, you shouldn't suffer 
an occupational detriment, which means you can't be dismissed, um, you can't be fired for the protected disclosure, you can't be arrested, etc. However, this is where the problem lies, is that nobody fires you before, because you've made the protected disclosure, except Trillion. Um, but most companies <laughs> don't. They would really fire you practically for using too much toilet paper. Uh, two of the reports that we did, one of them is a collateral damage. As soon as this uh, uh, CEO uh, started uh, looking into the affairs of one board member, it was the estate agent's agency, as soon as she started looking into the affairs of one member, uh, trouble started and, 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 and all sorts of things we said about her. In the end, she was fired, but later she was vindicated by a court of law which found that there was no wrongdoing on her side, and then she came to us just wanting an apology, and, 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 and we went through that and confirmed that she had done nothing wrong. The, the, there's a case in case at hand that you probably have heard about of, uh, that involves uh, MEC Mike Mabuyakulu. The, the, the whistleblower in that particular case came to the public protector, went to the NPA as well, and, she was fired for practically using too much toilet paper. She came to that department in August that year, I think 2013, she arrives in August. She's never been fired throughout her life. She's been a star performer throughout her life. And suddenly she finds irregularities that they're paying for things that they shouldn't be paying for, air shows, a North Sea Jazz Festival that never happened, and they still want her to pay for more. She refuses to pay for more. She questions the payments that have already been made, and, and the person she questions says, I'm going to discuss this with the MC, MEC, you're going to regret this. And, uh, and in, 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 in a few days, within a few days, she's on a training seminar. She gets a note that says, uh, from the MEC that says, no, I think from the, from the head of department that says, show cause why you shouldn't be fired. What is the charge? Hierarchical and rude. She's still on probation. These things have not been uh, raised with her about the need not to be hierarchical. God, if people needed to be fired for hierarchical, we wouldn't be having anybody working. <laughs> but yes, you know, we investigated it. We found wrongdoing on their side. She was returned to work. But usually the, 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 the atmosphere is poisoned. One in the Department of Justice resulted in a report. They called it justice. That one worked better. We investigated it. We went to the minister. And before we issued the report, the minister agreed with us that the original title was They Call It Justice. And then because they agreed with us, we said they called it justice when they did the wrong thing, but they had been on the road to Damascus and, and they had turned around. So we, as Papa we retained quite a lot of people to work. But the pain, my brother, the pain that whistleblowers go through. If I talk about the young lady from Trillion who whistleblew to me personally on state capture, gave me files, she has been harassed. She was at the point of losing her home. She was harassed. Other employers who say they are for good governance. When the whistleblowers are looking for jobs, they are no takers. She really struggled to find employment. In the meantime, they took her to the cleaners. She made a protected disclosure under the Act, which clearly is protected and therefore she shouldn't be prosecuted. But the Hawks still prosecuted her for making the protected disclosure to, to my office. So it is something that we need to, to, to work with. But I honestly think that some of it, we need more public participation, more uh, social accountability, what the World Bank refers to as social accountability. We want clean governance, we want an end to corruption, but why do whistleblowers find themselves all by themselves? When I was in Prague on a good governance conference some years back, I found that a rich person had put his money where his mouth was. He started a fund for the support of whistleblowers. And probably in South Africa, we need to do the same. Thank you, sir.
And the act itself is being improved. Hi. Um, so firstly, thank you so much for coming to speak to us. I feel like I'm in the presence of a legend. <laughs> but um, so here's a, the question I have is that, um, you know, a lot of people talk to us about ethics, but, you know, and it's easy to talk about doing the right thing, but, you know, you did the right thing when it was so hard. And um, I, I want to know, like, if you, what advice would you have for young people who also, you know, would like to do the, you know, because like you said, you got unfollowed, you paid a great penalty for it. Um, what advice would you give young people who also want to do the right thing, even when it's very hard? Uh, thank you, sir. My advice to a, a young person would be pay now rather than pay later. As I said, doing the right thing has a cost to it. And if you're going to play along just because you want to keep your job, you want to keep your, 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 your relationship with people, you might find yourself in the kinds of schemes that emerge at SABC, ESCOM, and, and many other parastatals. And when things fall apart, you're losing more as a young person because you're at the start of your career. So you have a stillborn career. The people that misled you, you will find that two things. One is they've had their career and they've got some nest somewhere. They, they will get some kind of pension. But secondly, they've already created some social capital in terms of their networks. If they lose out here, they're likely to be redeployed somewhere and they could be an ambassador to, to some place. So I would say, <laughs> it happened with Gupta Landing, isn't it? You know, the captain that, you know, authorized uh, the, the landing, thinking it was the right thing to do, ended up being the one losing her job. The ambassador, well, the, the, the fellow in the presidency who was involved in the negotiations got a promotion to, uh, to be an ambassador in The Hague. So I would say it, let's do two things though. One is rather pay now, but secondly, let's do what you're doing here. Never underestimate the value of what you've done this morning. I, I heard, for example, that the, the, the president spoke about ethics, and I suspect throughout this you've been speaking about ethical conduct and, 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 and its implications for the democracy we want, for the companies we want that are sustainable. Uh, I think we should continue to do that. We should continue to take our little lights if I use the two my languages, this little light of mine, it's a song that we used to sing as kids. You, 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 you shine that little light on the problem, but you, you, you find other people so that you're part of a network of people that are doing the right thing. The majority of people in government, in industry, in civil society are good human beings. It's just that when they find themselves alone, they often find themselves being motivated by fear as opposed to hope. And then there's also the question that some of the wrongdoers demand uh, what they refer to as loyalty. And there's two kinds of loyalty. There's unquestioning loyalty and there's unquestionable loyalty. But they want unquestioning loyalty. They want you to say they have the most beautiful garment in the land <laughs> when they are the naked emperors. So the idea is let's, let's, let's just work together. But just one last thing, which was not in my speech, which I do think is part of ethics, is the question of social justice. I do believe that treating people badly just because they don't know what they deserve is also unethical. Let's say you have a woman who was working somewhere and they were earning 30,000, but this job now, uh, the last person occupying it was earning a hundred thousand a month, and then you then ask this person. <laughs> so you ask them, what's your job expectations? They, they, they don't know what, you're the only one who has the information. So they give you what they, they had and they're expecting a little bit more. And then you pay them less. That's unethical, but not only is it unethical, it is contributing to the growing inequality in South Africa. And unfortunately, inequality operates like debt. When you don't 
break its back, it expands, it increases. And when you, you, uh, you invest more to end inequality, it decreases. The same thing with poverty. The reason our poverty is increasing is not because there's no political will, it's not because uh, there are no activities to end poverty, it's that they're too minuscule to make a difference. And we need to invest more heavily, but it boils down to epic leadership again. Always think about what you're doing and what is the impact. Will it decrease inequality? Will it increase inequality? And we invite you to be part of something we call an M plan for social justice. Uh, it is like the second World War II Marshall Plan, where Europe recovery was facilitated by America. And you might argue government Will government, should government be allowed to steal money and, and, and be corrupt? The truth is the M plan will include social accountability as well. But besides that, the notion behind the Marshall Plan is an understanding that even with the best governance, it's impossible for government to deal with the backlog that was inherited at the dawn of democracy. We should have heard a Marshall Plan, and I've discussed this with various people, that they agree that if we knew then what we know now, we should have heard a Marshall Plan. And so I invite you to be part of the M Plan for Social Justice. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Madoncela. Um, on behalf of the Actuarial Society, um, I think everybody here really enjoyed um, that discussion on ethical leadership. I think it's very much grounded in uh, the President's also strategy and vision for the profession and the society. And I think we all just appreciate actually how you've um, really spoken about the things that we need to think about in the way in which we work and in our profession and our day-to-day. Um, how we go about our day-to-day -day business to be better South Africans uh, and better citizens of the world. So thank you very much.